It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a guest we have been very excited to talk about. Heather McGee is the former president of Demos, the current board chair at Color of Change, and she is the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How Can We Prosper Together. Heather McGee, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Jess. Good morning, Zerlina. Good morning. Okay, you start this book with a question that we ask on this show a lot, which is, <laughs> why can't we have nice things? <laughs> That's right. And, and we usually answer that question with, well, because racism, or well, because the oh, patriarchy. Good. And you seem to have come up with the same answer here. So, so talk to me about <laughs> why, why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I spent 20 years trying to answer that question, trying to fix the biggest problems in our economy through research and statistical analysis and legislative testimony and bill drafting and lobbying, you know, trying to bring the facts about America's stagnant and declining wages, our lack of health insurance, our lack of health care, the poor investment we have in our own infrastructure, which gets a D plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Mm. I tried to bring that to the decision makers in Washington and in state houses and say, you know, it is in our rational economic self-interest for us to be less stingy to our own people and for us to invest in our children and our future. And it was like crickets most of the time, as you know, right? And so I left my job running a think tank and went on this journey for three years, talking to hundreds of people and doing research in areas that I had not heretofore uh, learned about around public, public opinion and social science research, sort of deeper stories about the why and, and not just the what. And what I learned was that the biggest impediment to our progress is a zero-sum mentality, the idea that there's an us and a them. And more white people than people of color hold this view, the view that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. And so the upshot of that is that white Americans support policies that would deny things to people whom they see as being on the opposite team, even if they would help them as well. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about voting against your self-interest. And yeah. We, yeah. We, we see that. I mean, we're watching it play out right now with mm-hmm. like vaccine distribution. The, the mo- we, we, we were so concerned about the hesitancy among the black about among black Americans because of you know super justified reasons and it turns out that in fact the the group that is far and away less likely to take um, a life-saving measure like the COVID vaccine is is um, white Republicans uh, folks yeah. with, with who don't have a college education and voted for Trump that seems like such an easy doing something against your own self-interest yeah, and there's a sense that, that, that what's baked up in there is an anti-government and an anti-science, both of which, both of which have their roots in racism, right? Racism mm-hmm. is the original pseudoscience, right? If you can mm-hmm. get someone to believe 
um, you know, that there's a taxonomy of value of human beings. Um, you can kind of get them to believe anything. Um, right. There's another example that's playing out in the news, though, and that is the Mississippi governor's refusal to take free federal money, free yeah. money, even more than it costs to, to administer the program, to expand Medicaid. And we're talking about Medicaid, which you know, is not only life-saving to individual working-class people, it would raise the threshold of who could be eligible from the abysmal, I think it's less than $5,000 right now in Mississippi. Basically, if you make more than $5,000, you are too rich for Medicaid. That's how stingy mm. it is. With Medicaid expansion, not only is it great for those families, the, you know, those workers and their families, but it's also great for the economy. We have rural hospitals all over the South that are closing because they've been starved for Medicaid dollars. And so this is something that is like a win-win-win across the board. And when I looked into this question, why are there so many Southern states that simply refuse this free money for Medicaid expansion? It's all about race. It's all about a higher correlation. The states with a higher black population, of which Mississippi is number one, are most reluctant to expand Medicaid. There's this idea, we don't want to have benefits that would benefit people of color, even if it would also benefit white people. I remember back when there was a debate over the public option. And I think it was at Netroots Nation, I was watching Tim Wise. And he said something that I've just never forgotten, which is the moment we called it the public option, it was over. Uh, it was not going it was not going to be a part of the legislation because the word public means black in a lot of yeah. people's minds and and it's code for black people will get this um in terms of you know how that baked in racism manifests itself what are some of the other policy issues that we're discussing right now i mean besides just the vaccine um stuff because i i i think it comes up even um, in terms of, you know, expanding, um, obviously expanding health care, but even in the stimulus debate, you know, increasing mm -hmm. the minimum wage. Um, yeah. That's not just going to Im impact um, black people. That's going to help everyone. But it feels to me like the way we talk about this is always racist, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important that your listeners know that it wasn't always the case that white Americans used to love government, that in fact, the wealth and relative comfort and middle-class security that most white Americans have, although, of course, it's been declining over the last 50 years, um, really comes from a truckload of free stuff that was handed out in a racially exclusive way from the Homestead Act and free land through to the New Deal, which was racially exclusive in so many terms, increasing, importantly, most importantly, the mortgage market and the labor protections um, through to the GI Bill, which should have gone to millions of black veterans and did not because of segregation and education. So all of these big, generous public investments were pretty much for whites only in the 20th century. And it was only when integration came, when the civil rights movement came, when literally, as I describe in my book, the grand resort style public swimming pools that used to be segregated in places all over the country were ordered to integrate that so many towns decided instead of letting black families swim that they would drain the public mm -hmm. pool 
meaning a loss, of course, in this community benefit for everyone, something white families used to enjoy. White families with means then built them in their backyards and created members-only private swimming pools, right? So we have this loss of a public good that then became a private luxury and amenity, meaning that rich people were fine, but black and white and brown working and middle-class folks were increasingly going without. And that going without extends now to so many areas of our economy. Look at higher education, which used to be free for people, Public colleges used to be paid for by the government, either through funding state colleges at the state level or government grants, not federal loans, Mm -hmm. in order to pay for tuition. And it wasn't until the college-going population became more diverse that state legislatures and the federal government started creating this debt-for-diploma system, which disproportionately impacts black families, right, eight out of ten blacks. Students have to borrow and at the highest rates because of that racial wealth gap, not having a lot of savings to go into college, but also this now affects six out of 10 white families. Same with the minimum wage. Under $15 an hour, the majority of workers are white, disproportionately black and brown, but the majority are white. And yet you see across the board about a 20 to 30 percentage point gap in support for the policies that would make life better for everyone between white and black and brown voters. And the reason is this often unconscious racism, this belief that the government basically betrayed, you know, the racial order in the during the civil rights movement. And most importantly, as I always want to be, remember to say, this is a zero-sum racial story that is being blared nonstop from plutocratic propaganda, from the Fox Newses and the Republican elites and the, and the right-wing media. It's absolutely in their economic self-interest to have white Americans turn their backs on their neighbors of color and on the vehicles for collective action. That's what keeps the economic hierarchy in order. That's what keeps their power in order. That's why the majority of white people haven't voted for a Democrat for president since the party of the New Deal became the party also of civil rights with Lyndon Johnson. And so this is really about a story that's being sold to white Americans by rich people white Americans for their own profit. It's impoverishing them. It's impoverishing our whole country. But thankfully, in in the journey that I took to write The Sum of Us, I also found a ton of reasons for hope, places where people were actually rejecting the zero sum. And I began to call those the solidarity dividends, the gains Hmm. that we could unlock, that we we can't do on our own. Cleaner air, higher wages, better funded schools. The American Rescue Plan itself is a massive solidarity dividend that's going to cut child poverty in half for millions of white, black, and brown families. You have so much empathy for the, <laughs> for the, the, the white people. And like, I'm sitting here as, as a, a, a white person. Um, I don't, I don't feel that usually like when, when I, you know, yeah. when I read about the pool draining, like that is a thing that I actually like, that is a piece of history that I knew that, that as soon as public pools were, were integrated, we drained them and built our own in our backyards. I, I have a really hard time looking at that and just not seeing hateful people. Like, those are just hateful people who wanted to deny children a nice summer. Like, I can't imagine anything worse than waking up and being like, how can I keep kids from having fun this summer? Hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I can, but that's pretty bad. <laughs> but, like, I, 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 so I think I get stuck mm-hmm. in the, like, mm-hmm. you're an awful person. This is, these are mm-hmm. bad people. And you're telling me to, to 
to broaden that thinking that like the the bad people are are possibly the it's it's the ruling class that are making folks feel this way and mm -hmm. i should i should probably train my ire on the system instead of the individual racist with the pool drainer yeah i mean well first of all thank you for saying that i think it's actually a really interesting conversation as more and more white Americans, particularly younger Americans, become progressive and on mm -hmm. racial issues, right? It means that you, Jess, are the kind of white person who has drawn the us versus them line in a very different way, right? You're like, no, Oh, yeah, I know which side. I, I've got the line. I just know which side of it I'm on. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you're almost progressive because you want to hang out with Obama, right? Because you, you want to hang out with Obama. <laughs> exactly. Because of your Black people issues. are just better. I don't know. <laughs> You said it. I didn't. Sorry. You're like, I'm the first one in the integrated pool. Bring it. You know? Right. It's actually like a part of your personality now. And I just think that's yeah. a really interesting moment we're in, in American politics. But ultimately, everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And the only way we win, right? Black folks are 13% of the population. Let us be very clear. We may be, you know, more than loud in the cultural space. We may be dominating Twitter, but we are not, even in Mississippi, enough of the population in order to create an enduring political coalition based exclusively on, you know, black power and black politics. So there's a, a real politic around why cross-racial solidarity is important for us all being able to have nice things. But I, I guess you're right. I mean, I have been accused of having sort of a little bit more of the empathy uh, gene and muscle um, than than a lot of folks. And I think it's because, you know, I, I always am looking at power. What is the question of power? Yes, the individual white voter who votes for a Donald Trump or who votes for a Ronald Reagan because of the story that they're telling that is absolutely hits the, one of the oldest subterranean stories in American society, the zero-sum racial hierarchy that justified stolen land and stolen people and stolen labor that was revived generation after generation in terms of the idea of job competition and competition for housing and slots at schools, right? This is a very old story. So, I mean, I just feel like if you look at a guy who votes for Donald Trump uh, or let's just take it back to the pool, right? The white family mm -hmm. that says, yeah, we probably can't have that pool anymore now that the people that I've been taught are so unclean, so disdainful, so distrustworthy that they should not even been able to, you know, go to the same schools or drink the same water or swim in the same pool. I've been taught that, right? That wasn't something I grew up with, that was born with. That's not something I've been taught. And who's interested it served to have that racial segregation, right? There's a, a little bit of a sense of white superior status, right? The, what what W.B. Du Bois called the, the wages of whiteness, what I found when I went into Mississippi to uh, look at, to talk to workers who had just had a failed union organizing drive. You know, definitely the white workers were treated better at the plant, and they thought that the union was going to put them on level ground, and so they wouldn't get the, like, little perks. But this is the thing. None of the workers, white or black, had good health care or higher wages right. or better retirement benefits or job security without mm -hmm. the union that most of the white workers, workers voted against. So this is what Du Bois called the wages of whiteness, the psychological wages of whiteness. It's like you'd rather have a little taste of superiority than have real security and real freedom. That's been the trade-off. And that's why I say, ultimately, 
it's not actually in average white folks' economic self-interest or even survivor self-interest when we look at things like climate change or look at instances like Texas, right? It, these or Medicaid expansion. There's so many examples where people mm-hmm. are literally dying in order to hold on to this this story that they've been told and that they are told day in and day out. And I just think there's a better story that's right there at the offing. That's a story of this country finally recognizing that our diversity is our our superpower. That the proximity of so much difference in this increasingly diverse country can reveal our common humanity that we can reject a very old story and replace it with something that really makes a new world out of this country. And I believe we're like each day there's a toggle between those two possible stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately a hopeful person. I can't be here as the descendant of enslaved people and not be hopeful. And that's just, I'm putting my money on the future. I'm putting my money on us finally rejecting this old story. And I found evidence of it all throughout my journey to write to some of us. I feel the same way, especially because I think about, I mean, I just think about what black people have survived just so that I exist Mm -hmm. in this moment. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. who am I to feel like, oh, this is so bad. It's never been worse. I mean, that is the biggest (laughs) lie, right? Um, And then the other thing too, is that, um, you know, I feel optimistic about I'm I'm really into the Gen Z babies. Like I just mm-hmm. I I find the Gen Z babies to be um inspiring in a way that you, just because of their their ability to communicate about race, about gender, about identity, um, you know, their their ability to to use TikTok to teach um, you know, people about these issues. I I just find it so refreshing. And it's not a surprise to me that, you know, certain stories are continuing to be told because, for example, Chuck Grassley has been in the, in Congress longer than I've been on Earth. That's my favorite fact. Um, and, you know, so, so the people that, are, that have always been telling these stories for a generation are still in positions of power to continue yeah, telling those stories. Right. So at what point does the generational shift – I mean, I believe – the squad mm-hmm. and AOC and uh, folks like that represent the beginning of sort of this generational shift that we're going to need mm-hmm. in order to sort of push past, you know, the Chuck Grassley's of the world um, and the Mitch McConnell's. But mm-hmm. do you feel, do you feel like that has started? Is it accelerating? Um, is the pandemic going to, to make it happen faster? I hope so. um well there's so much there i I totally agree with you that hope is 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 a feature of black politics right and that's what i've been sort of interested in this question jess that you raised about sort of like almost like the personality traits that that are Mm -hmm. drawn to certain politics right and it's like if you're a white progressive you, you know, you're kind of mad at the rest of white people. Yes, yes, this is true. <laughs> you can often actually be quite pessimistic because you, you focus on all the things that are not the myth of American innocence, you know, you mm-hmm. like actually sort of super saturate on the negative parts of the country, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you're a black progressive or just a black person, frankly, there's often a lot of like cynicism, but also a lot of hope that absolutely comes from this idea that Zermina expressed, right? That like, yeah. there's no way that we can ever say that our ancestors who had to face far more with far less would tolerate us being anything more than like roll up your sleeves hopeful, 
right? Um, so I right. just think it's such an interesting, and then this is the coalition, right? These personalities are like thrown <laughs> together. <laughs> um, we we but, do it every morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get, you Heather, get, like case of it every morning. I, I, I would we would really love to have you back because this is one of those conversations that I feel like we could go two or three or 75 more segments on and <laughs> and and we the two of us would come away educated and I'm sure our listeners would too um, but I, instead I just have to tell everybody to buy the sum of us what racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together and thank you for joining us this morning and if you ever want to come back anytime anytime <laughs> you are very very welcome here <laughs> but, thank you Thank you both. Thank you so much for the show. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.